Media Visa Engel on the Visa Partners Podcast, where we analyze the biggest stories from around the world and their impact on business and policy. Visa Partners is a global public affairs and government relations consulting firm. You can learn more at avisa-partners.com. You can find the Avisa Engel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing and giving us a five-star review. I'm your host, Daniel Flesh, coming to you from the Visa U.S. office in Washington, D.C. On this week's edition of the Avisa Angle, we explore the topic in our newest bi-weekly Avisa Insight, a renewed all-of-the-above energy policy approach. Rocked by global energy shortages and massive price hikes caused in part by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, global leaders have been forced to deprioritize climate goals and focus on powering their countries by any available means, most notably fossil fuels. In the U.S., President Biden came into office campaigning on pursuing green energy goals and cutting back on oil and natural gas production. With inflation at a multi-decade high and Americans continuing to face high prices at the pump, Biden is looking for ways to relieve energy prices while still pursuing clean energy solutions. By now, however, it's becoming clear that the myth that renewables can be the main energy source powering today's economies is fading. What does that mean for a green future and U.S. energy independence? Joining me to discuss this and more is my colleague, Omri Ramil, author of our bi-weekly Visa Insight. Omri, it's great to have you here. Hey, Daniel. Happy to be with you. So, Omri, let's talk about the insight a bit. As most of our listeners know, over the past decade plus, America has seen incredible growth of domestic energy production. We've, we've achieved energy independence. At least that was the story. So it's not so much anymore today. Let's talk about how we got here. Perhaps we need to start before the Biden administration with the Trump administration to kind of compare and contrast. So what happened with Trump? I think it's easy uh, to see that there's been a major oscillation of U.S. energy policy between this administration and the previous President Trump really came to office with one energy goal in mind, and that was energy independence. It was utilize every American resource available, uh, frack it, drill it, pump it, and make sure that we are using it. I think the the threat of climate change was was far off the radar of the previous administration, not really a focus. I think it was probably an easy time to work at the EPA, uh, <laughs> if that makes any sense. And then we saw a radical change with the emergence of, of President Biden. He came to office with, with, with far different goals, and that was placing climate change on the top of the list of threats facing the country and the world, and a goal of taking significant action to transition our economy to that of green energy. Yeah, so I think one of the campaign stops Trump made in 2016 was to a, a coal mine and talked about big, beautiful coal. Contrast that to on his first day in office, President Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline which was going to bring crude oil from Canada down to American refineries in the, on the Gulf of Mexico, providing jobs, providing more American energy independence, but canceled that on day one. So clearly, obviously, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, a big oscillation, a big you know, point of contraction. Yeah, just a completely different uh, vision of the world and, and, and what type of energy strategy we need. But right now, we're in the midst of a global energy crisis. Uh, Americans are finding it much more expensive to fill up their cars, to heat their homes, and rising energy prices have been a driving cause of inflation. The inflation has been the leading cause of the Fed lowering interest rates that could potentially trigger a recession. So a lot of this comes back to energy. Uh, people having jobs next year can likely come down to energy. So it's an issue at the top of the administration's uh, agenda, and they've taken a, a variety of actions to try to remedy uh, the global energy shortage and rising prices, but they haven't had that much success yet. So like what have they done? 
So they've they've taken a, a variety of approaches. One, they've tapped into our strategic petroleum reserve, which is a reserve fuel storage for national security crises that we tap into so our economy can keep moving. Uh, they've tapped into it multiple times, uh, been criticized by, by Republican lawmakers for doing so, who consider it not, not quite the emergency that necessitates tapping into that. Right, and part of the, I think the reason for that is because the amount that they've drawn from has only, I saw the statistic a while ago, but it, it, was, it was to keep America on the road for like two days. Mm-hmm. It wasn't providing three months relief or anything like that. It was only amounted to a couple of days relief. Yeah. Uh, and then we saw that OPEC also had an announcement last week. Yes, OPEC announced that they would be uh, cutting production at the end of this year, uh, which will heighten the energy crunch. And that is compounded with an upcoming uh, ban on Russian energy imports to the EU, which are doing obviously in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which will just make the energy crisis even worse. Right. And so that OPEC, OPEC Plus, which also includes Russia in this regard, it's like the U.S. and the Biden administration then went to the Saudis and asked them to increase, basically to renege on that and to increase oil production, or actually maintain it, again, because we need the consumption. The consumption here, demand is not going down. Uh, it's, it's maintaining or even growing, obviously, with the growing population. So as you write in this piece, there's a myth that's been evaporated or is evaporating, that green energy is sufficient to replace fossil fuels. Can you talk about who's propagating that myth and what why it's evaporating now? I think there's a pretty broad scientific consensus and an emerging political consensus that, that climate change is, is a real and existing threat. And I think the way of combating that is reducing emissions and transitioning to green technology and environmentally friendly uh, fuel sources. I think the question is not if but it but it's it's when and there's a large consensus mainly on the left of the political spectrum who are looking for immediate transitions to green energy technology don't worry about the impact that that would have on the economy or on american workers we need to change now to save the planet or where even those green energies and green technologies would come from for that matter absolutely absolutely uh and just to give everyone kind of on the same page here the Energy uh, Information Administration, they say that in 2021, last year, renewable energy, which obviously accounts for solar, hydroelectric, wind, etc., only counted for about 12% of U.S. energy consumption. Do you know how much it was for fossil fuels that year? Probably a lot more. Yeah, obviously a lot more. Natural gas, tw- 32%, petroleum, 36%, coal, 11%. If my math is right, that's nearly 80% of U.S. consumption came from fossil fuels. So, right, so to your point, like if you sw- switch off the, the renewable switch, uh, rather, if you flip switch off the fossil fuel switch, we're going to have 80% gap in demand right there. Yeah, I just don't think it's something we're quite ready for. And I think it's it's up to our political leadership to sort of make that point clear, that renewable energy is is our final destination, but, but we're not ready and we have not arrived yet. Yeah, as you mentioned about Russia starting to restrict exports of natural gas, of energy, essentially to Western Europe, you see in Germany, the new government under Olaf Scholz, right, is a different change than his predecessor, which focused a lot on green energy and wanted to cut down on the nuclear power plant emissions, or nuclear power power plant production, excuse me. And given the war and given in Ukraine and given what you mentioned about Russia uh, minimizing exports to Germany, the Scholz government now is keeping open their nuclear power plants. Yeah, I mean, Greta Thunberg was a time person of the year in 2019. 
That was before the pandemic, and that was before Russians' invasion of Ukraine. And that was while America was energy independent. Too. While America was energy independent. And we we're just in a completely different world now, where, where just the reality of geopolitics and the reality of evil regimes have sort of slapped us in the face. Um, and I think we're trying to pivot. We're trying to adapt. One interesting point uh, I wanted to mention that we heard from CNBC's Hadley Gamble, who was in the Avisa Partners offices here in Washington, D.C., for an event we held with Al Monitor, is that we should be investing in renewables heavily. But today, they're not ready to get us where we need to be. And so that leads to the need to develop energy storage technologies and other research-heavy products that can enable us to, to, to a new green generation. Yeah, and just to give some t- context of that quote, I remember when she was here, it was before an audience of prominent members in governments, uh, foreign and domestic, uh, think tank officials, private sector, etc. And everyone here was in agreement understanding that, you're right, we want to invest in renewables heavily, as she mentioned, but it's not where it not it's not where it, it's not at a point right now where we can rely on it. So don't mm-hmm. you know don't cut off the fossil fuel route when you need to uh, maintain it because you have again high demand. That's right, and I think uh, you were traveling recently, right, to North Dakota. I was. And what did you see there? What did I see there? Uh, so North Dakota uh, is a very interesting state. I saw a lot of farmland. Saw a lot of fair number of Minuteman Two silos. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Just kind of off the side of the road there, but also saw a lot of oil and gas and mining facilities. Uh, so to give everyone a little bit of context, actually, a question for you, Omri. Then is when you think of an oil rig, what pops to mind? There will be blood. There will it's be a blood. great film. Daniel There's a lot Day of Lewis. oil everywhere. There's tough workers. Uh, not an easy place to be. Yeah. Now maybe in a great movie. Uh, but also occurred, took place about 100 years ago, I think. So technology has advanced significantly since then. And, but when you think of that, you think of, yeah, you think of this kind of big ecological footprint. If you're thinking of offshore, you might think of Deepwater Horizon, mm-hmm. um, the incident that occurred in the 2000s there. Uh, but you think of, again, big ecolo- ecological um, footprint. And that was, I was, that's why I was thinking as well, going to North Dakota, what I saw blew my mind. On what's about a half acre square, you have an oil rig, that is similar to what you have on There Will Be Blood, obviously modernized technology, steel, et cetera, not some wooden, wooden mm-hmm. derrick. Uh, but this oil rig is drilling an oil bit that's about 6 to 12 inches in diameter, two miles down in the earth, and then two miles laterally, horizontally out, away from the rig. And it's not doing just that for one well. It's doing that for up to 25 different wells, again, on this half-acre pad. It's significant. It is very significant. And the story of North, North Dakota is is a story of what's called the Bakken Formation. It's this huge reservoir, huge underground, obviously, reservoir of oil that's trapped in shale gas. And this is where you get fracking from, hydraulic fracturing, right? So you send, the, two, the, you send the, um, the drill down two miles down, two miles out, and then through a bunch of processes, you basically break the, the rock and you suck out the oil, and then you, that's, that's basically mining and drilling for it. Um, but I mentioned this about the 25 different wells, because mm-hmm. about 15 years ago, each rig could only drill about nine wells. The technological advancements to increase that almost threefold are significant. And that meant also now that it, you know, the footprint is even smaller because in 20, what's my notes here? In 2012, there was an all-time high of about 218 rigs operating at a given time. Again, this kind of ramping up to the peak of U.S. energy production. Last year, the number is down to about 22. Now that has to do with a kind of a combination of 
diminished demand mm-hmm. and because of permitting issues that they haven't been able to produce as much oil. They're not operating capacity right now up there because by and large, this administration, getting back to your earlier point, has restricted uh, permitting leases to drill. Um, but their capacity is certainly there. And then kind of the footprint, another footprint comment about mining is that the mining companies will buy rights for land from private farmers, private owners, drill or rather mine the land. After a few years, they return it to the state they had to find it in, to the original owners. Oh. Yeah. So this is an area in the country that now has catapulted itself to the third largest oil producing state in the country after Texas and New Mexico, one and two. And those three states actually are in the top 20 of oil producing sites in, in the entire world. That's fascinating. And I think I saw uh, on the debate last night between John Fetterman and Dr. Oz, um, a pretty unique pivot from from the Democratic uh, contender, John Fetterman, that he's now supportive of fracking. He made a comment in 2018 about that, I guess, and he's saying it now, too. Yeah, so maybe we'll see uh, a growth in Pennsylvania also. Yeah, well, if you go from big, beautiful coal and and fracking in 2016, and now the, the U.S., has the capability. I mean, it's hard to see why both parties don't want to be behind that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, but I want to shift now a little bit to the second part of the story that is from your insight. And it's not so obvious, but I think it's something we want to, want to tease out a little bit. So we talk about the current state of energy, where the U.S. fits in as well, that the need to evaporate the myth that renewables can provide a clear alternative and a sufficient alternative, really, if you got rid of any one of the three fossil fuel, uh, oil, natural gas, or, or mining for coal. Now, that's one story. The second story, though, you talk about is so has to do with supply chains, having to do with investing in the mm-hmm. new technologies of the future, uh, and also the relationship we have with foreign actors who might control some of that production and manufacturing capability. So walk us through this a little bit. I think that brings um, just a big issue that, that we've all learned in the past few years is that American dependence on hostile foreign actors for anything we need is a dangerous position to be in. We saw it during the pandemic with uh, the Chinese um, control over PPE and the shortages we've faced here. We see it now with uh, Russia's use of natural gas as a, as a weapon uh, to force countries to oblige uh, to its ridiculous political and uh, other positions. And the, the, the same Russia you mentioned that is part of OPEC Plus. Precisely. That is curtailing uh, production by 2 billion barrels. Using yeah. oil as a yeah. weapon. I think we all see the trajectory of, of future mobility is going to be electric. It's mm-hmm. electric vehicles, uh, both for personal and professional use, construction, flight, etc. Um, it's electric-powered vehicles. Well, flight one day, I'm not holding my breath, but we're seeing a lot of Teslas out there, so GM, Ford, other companies producing electric vehicles, yeah. But yeah. Flight, flight one day. Flight one day, yes. drones, etc. Yes. Uh, but the future, I think, I think will be electric. And we want to make sure that the United States is not dependent on any foreign nation for those lithium batteries we need to, to power us. And right now we are. Um, China is in a dominating position when it comes to both uh, electric vehicle batteries and the components and critical minerals necessary for them. And that's something that needs to change if we want to be able to, to really command and lead this next generation of mobility. Well, not to ask too leading of a question here, but I understand Congress has been working on that, right? With the uh, inf- infrastructure bill and the IRA. Talk a little about that. That's what they're doing. Congress has but been. Um, there's been not always a bipartisan consensus, but we do see Republicans and Democrats on the same page on the need to invest on the United States' domestic battery capacity and capability. 
uh, so recently as part of the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, $2.8 billion of grants uh, were announced to foster up the domestic mining, processing, and manufacturing uh, for electric vehicle batteries. So I think that's a step in the right direction of weaning off uh, China's dominance in this field. Right. Very good. And so kind of to wrap up here a little bit, we have a president that has had to change tack multiple times, mm-hmm. right? Came in, again, we talked about the first day in office, a number of executive actions that clearly laid out a pro-green amendment, uh, uh, excuse me, amendment, pro-green agenda, shall we call it, uh, which, all, and then he has had to change that a little bit, which has uh, upset his primarily progressive base recently. Um, and said the outset, you know, inflation is very high. And I looked this up before we got on the air here. The average price of a gallon of gas today, three seventy six. Mm-hmm. And when he took office in January twenty twenty one, it was two dollars and thirty nine cents. So, but yet we also seem to have a general consensus in Washington talking about China, the People's Republic of China, the PRC, that they are geopolitical threats. That's something that Republicans have been talking about for a while. Democrats, in in parts as well. But now you have a national security strategy out last week or two weeks ago from the Biden administration that says, and I quote, that China is the only competitor with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to advance that objective, unquote. So they're clearly laying out that China is a very clear mm-hmm. geopolitical competitor. I mean, not so much, I don't probably call them a threat, but certainly a competitor in, in, the, in this area of business. Now, the IRA was not a bipartisan effort. You mentioned infrastructure law was. So is there common ground? We'll get to the midterms in a second. But is there common ground on the Hill for pursuing a new approach when it comes to secure America's energy future? So right now in the, in the height of the political campaign season, I wouldn't say that there is. Um, but there has been in the past. Uh, there's an interesting comparison I found that in 2012, President Barack Obama called for an all-of-the-above energy approach. He called for the use of fossil fuels, of solar, of hydro, of wind power, and sort of emanating that we need to have a bigger-picture view on our energy supply. We can't just immediately jump to green, renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And in 2022, Congressional Republicans on the National Natural Resources Committee came out with a similar approach. And, you know, I've seen some lawmakers more in the center-left, center-right um, speak to the need for an all-of-the-above approach, but it hasn't really been brought up in the mainstream. I think it'll take leadership to face the generational challenge that that the PRC is and the generational challenge that, that a changing climate is, and that leadership should recognize that there has been a consensus, and that's been using all of American energy strength. And that means not ostracizing American oil and gas companies who are fueling our economy and pushing us forward. And also means not ignoring uh, the important aspect that green renewable technology will have for the future. And it means investing in those technologies. Right. I think there actually is consensus, at least interest, in recognizing that green energy is a place and a role to play. The question is, is it now or is it tomorrow? And by tomorrow, I mean, you know, a number of years off. And I think the answer by most conservatives is it's, it's a few years down the road by, you know, more on the center left. It's perhaps more nearer term. And it's, as you mentioned, you know, demystifying the myth uh, and getting to the all above, all above approach. So in con- comparing to the extent that we, this has been an interesting comparison, Obama 2012 with Congressional Republicans 2022. I'm surprised I'm saying that in one sentence. But it seems that Obama certainly was pro-green energy, but did recognize, at least in, in, in rhetoric, that we can't mm-hmm. forsake fossil fuels. Now you have... 
Republicans saying the same thing. On the record, they've often said this for a while, but you also have the difference perhaps in the environment is the end of this myth that renewables can replace fossil fuels. So looking forward past the midterms a little bit and maybe into the next Congress or even the next presidential election, Mm -hmm. do you think there's hope for some sort of bipartisan, let's get off the word consensus, but Mm -hmm. more action-oriented into uh, some sort of action or, or legislation or or you know, joint statements that this is a new path forward? I think it'll take real leadership, um, especially during the primary process where politicians need to go to the extreme ends of their political party to win. And that's challenging in this environment. Um, but, but hopefully leaders will step up, sort of realize we have a common challenge ahead, and that's energy independence, uh, and take steps accordingly. Well, I think we'll end there on that positive note. Omri, appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. We'll include the topic of today's discussion in the podcast show notes. And as always, see you next time on The Aviza Angle.